Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Michael Walzer, Professor Emeritus at the Institute of Advanced Study and Emeritus Editor of Descent Magazine. Author, editor, and political theorist, Michael describes himself as someone who has made a living writing political theory. Michael still writes for Dissent Magazine. His latest book, A Foreign Policy for the Left, Yale University Press, 2018. Uh, Professor Walzer, Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Glad to be here. Michael, uh, you mentioned uh, in your preface to A Foreign Policy for the Left that many people, including your parents, help you think about politics and and defend political positions. You would have been an early teen about the time of the Hiss Chambers testimonies before Congress. Were these events something uh, you recall being discussed at home? Actually, I don't remember. I mean, I can tell you what my my parents would have said, (laughs) but I don't remember them saying it. They They would have wanted to believe Alger Hiss and worried that some of what he said wasn't believable, and they would have wanted not to believe Chambers, and sure. would have worried that some of what he said sounded plausible. <laughs> but when I when I remember my parents' instruction about politics, what I remember most clearly is when I was seven or eight years old, and they told me never to cross a picket line. So that's that's the beginning of a leftist's education. Sure, thanks for that. As your family experienced that period, hey, to to what extent would you agree with the assertion that this was the first real confrontation in the culture wars of the past half century? I, I don't know. The culture wars may have begun with um, the Popular Front. The, eff- the effort of the Communist Party to create a uh, uh, a culture that um, a popular culture that supported uh, left uh, politics and the resistance of some um, anti-communist intellectuals who thought it was propaganda and kitsch. My mentors, my political mentors who were who were formed in the 30s, would have said that the culture wars began then in the 1930s. Yeah. There you're referring to Irving Howe and yes, um, and the, yes, the people who are my political teachers. Let's fast forward a, a, a little here uh, to 1968. King and Kennedy both assassinated. What stands out in your memory of that year? And, and I'm sure it's many things. But when you think back about your writing and, and your solidarity with your colleagues at Descent and, and beyond, how do you make sense of, of the past, your personal past, as situated within that of our larger shared national history? And I'm thinking of this in, in light of your final chapter of the book, uh, Thick and Thin, uh, Moral Argument at Home and Abroad. Um, you have a chapter five there called The Divided Self. And among other things, your defense of difference, uh, but, but also your description of the self as divided three ways, interests, identities, and ideals. 
I'm, I'm not sure, though, Michael, that that reference uh, there to the divide itself makes the, the question any easier uh, for you to answer. Yeah, well, 1968 was a time of fierce divisions on the left and around and across the, the country. And I'm, I'm not sure I was um, internally divided <laughs> at that time. I felt pretty passionately on, uh, on certain sides. Although I would say, I think, that the sides I chose were more willing to recognize and deal with difference than some of the people we opposed. What, what I remember most clearly from that year was the, the, the division um, among my friends and co-workers um, between those who wanted to oppose the war by draft resistance or by bringing the war home, which meant uh, some version of native terrorism, and those of us who wanted to um, join the Gene McCarthy campaign and wanted to, we thought, stop the war by winning an election. Um, and I was one of, I, I actually traveled with McCarthy um, and I was in, uh, I was on the West Coast with him when uh, Kennedy was uh, assassinated. So those were, uh, those were trying times. If, if you want to get a sense of my position then, in 1968, a group of radical students occupied University Hall at Harvard University, mm. the, the administrative center of the university. And this was a, to protest uh, the war and the university's involvement in the war through programs like uh, the ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps. So I was against occupying the building, but I was supportive of the students who did it, and I tried very hard to help them escape expulsion and suspension. I tutored them on how they should speak to the um, administrative board that was going to consider their expulsion. So I was against the radical action because I thought there were more effective ways of politics, and I didn't think the war should be fought out in American universities, inside American universities. But I liked the kids who were willing to act, and and um, and I tried to help them stay at the university. Yeah, that that's an insight there. Well, before we get back to a foreign policy for the left, Michael, hey, let's give listeners who may be less familiar with your work a, a lay of the land, so to speak. In the preface to your first edition of of your widely read and influential book just and unjust wars, your opening sentences point out, and I quote, I did not begin by thinking about war in general, but about particular wars, above all about the American intervention in Vietnam. Nor did I begin as a philosopher, but as a political activist and a partisan. This distinction you make right there between a person of thought and a person of action is also reflected, I think, in the cases you choose to write about in the book. That is, you discuss real historical examples in contrast to hypotheticals. Can you tell us a bit uh, about the significance of, of that approach? And likewise, how beginning as a man of action, an activist, a partisan, made a difference in your writing and 
and political theorizing. Yes, well, it's central to my own sense of my um, political writing. I have always been um, an engaged citizen. I, uh, I began very early, not only writing for dissent, but also at the request of the editors uh, going south in 1960 to, to meet the students sitting in at lunch counters in North Carolina and to write about what they were doing and to encourage them, to support them. I, I don't think political theory should be a merely academic enterprise. And I don't think it originally was. Writers like Hobbes and Locke were engaged in the politics of their time. Hobbes defending um, the king and defending an authoritarian state, and Locke defending religious toleration and a limited um, government. They had they they wrote their theories in support of their activities and their commitments, um, and that. It has always seemed to me that that's what political theory should be like. It isn't. I understand the value of climbing a mountaintop and looking at a great distance at uh, humanity and trying to write about human beings as as abstract individuals and um, addressing what they should do or not do in in, in eternity, for rather than here and now. But I've never I've never wanted to write that kind of philosophy or theory. And so I, I, I did go to school with some very, very talented, abstract, analytic philosophers uh, who used weird hypotheticals. But it always seemed to me that an argument, if it was to be persuasive to my contemporaries, had to address the situation of my contemporary. And so I needed I needed examples that they would recognize as examples from their from contemporary politics or from his, uh, history that they at least were familiar with. Did, did you then, in terms of writing style, is there any one in particular you tend to um, imitate or? Well, it was Irving Howe, I suppose, um, or George Orwell. George Orwell has this marvelous essay on um, politics and the English language, which we used to send to dissent contributors. This is the way you should write. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Irving believed so, that that we should write for the general reader who might be an imaginary figure, but he wasn't a professor. And that was very important. Sure. Yeah. And yes, and that that's a interesting thinking of your audience. And uh, there's a flip side to that. You note uh, in, in the preface uh, to a foreign policy for the left that Irving Howe once wrote that left politics is, and I quote, uh, steady work. You use this as lead-in to point out you have a, a family of steady workers in, in all the causes of the left, uh, which have made all your books possible. Uh, can you share a bit uh, about that kind of solidarity with your family and, and what has uh, made it special to you uh, over the years? Well, I think everybody wants children and grandchildren who's whose lives and work they can recognize and, and, and value. I have a, a daughter who is the uh, CEO of an organization that does um, 
early literacy training for families at risk, for the families of immigrants and poor people. I have another daughter who is the uh, co-principal of a high school in uh, Manhattan, which is really the work of the Lord, a, a school that is roughly one-third white, one-third black, one-third Hispanic, not by design, but because um, that's the way the, the, um, the, the student body has shaped up and it makes for a, an extraordinary educational experience. And I have my oldest grandson works in a, an organization that tries to keep people out of prison to uh, to make the courts work in a way that doesn't end in massive incarceration. Um, and those are uh, the kinds of work that I can I can just sit back and and admire my children, my grandchildren. I have a granddaughter who's just begun teaching uh, in in Boston's last vocational high school, wow. and she's teaching English. She's teaching Shakespeare to people who will be car mechanics and and beauticians, um, and she loves it and she loves them. So, so. all in the family, nice. Um, <laughs> Well, and moving on from there, uh, hey, you've been writing for Descent uh, magazine since the end of your undergraduate days at Brandeis University. Uh, can you describe how you decide what issues you'll write about, what's your process of prioritizing? Has, has it changed over the years? Well, um, in the beginning, I was a, I was a kid who took on assignments. I wrote about what Irving Out wanted me to write about, <laughs> or Lou Kutzer, or any of the editors of, uh, of Descent. And at a certain point, I began giving assignments to other young people. I think what I what things I have written about are the things that my fellow citizens are at that moment most concerned with. Um, I wrote about um, issues like um, conscription and civil disobedience in, in the 60s when those were central issues. I wrote about what the kids in the South were doing when, every, when we thought everybody ought to notice what they were doing. Um, I wrote about I was running around the country giving talks against the Vietnam War in 67 when the Israeli preemptive attack against Egypt took place and suddenly I was defending the preemptive attack and attacking the American war. And there were some people who thought that wasn't a consistent position. If you were against war, you should be against war. And so I had to figure out how to argue that there were good wars and bad wars, just wars and unjust wars. And, and my book, came out of that experience, the experience of, of arguing in front of sometimes critical audiences. Dissent was a, was a pivotal a point uh, from which you were bouncing ideas off of them, they were challenging you, and then essays you wrote there or the articles you wrote then become uh, book-length pieces. Right, right. right. Nice. Uh, solidarity. And a kind of uh, philosophy of loyalty uh, is one thing. Uh, but as uh, Stuart Hampshire titled one of his short tracks, uh, Justice is Conflict. And though you may have grown tired of uh, telling the story, for those of this uh, that cut our teeth in elective courses like comparative political systems, it, it has a special resonance. And, and I'm speaking about uh, Harvard University in 1970. Uh, 
Uh, you taught a course with Professor Robert Nozick called uh, Capitalism and Socialism. This was before uh, you both became well-known authors, Nozick with the Libertarian Anarchy State and Utopia, and yourself with Just and Unjust Wars. Can, can you tell us what that might have been like from a student's perspective? Uh, what were your required readings and how, how did you approach the classroom? Were, were you and Nozick uh, similar in style or, or, or quite different? Quite, quite different, I think. It was um, we were friends. And one of the ways we dealt with the arguments we were having in class was um, to play handball, to go to the gym afterwards and have a game of handball. The nature of the course was literally an argument. Um, he would lay, he would speak, he would give two lectures laying out an argument, and I would respond with one lecture, and he would respond to my response with another lecture. Then I would give two lectures, and he would respond, and I would respond, and that's the way we went. And I was defending a version of democratic socialism. Uh, a liberal version, market socialism. I wasn't a, I wasn't a radical egalitarian. I, I didn't wear a, um, a Mao jacket to the class. Uh, and he was defending a libertarian, a qu quite radical libertarian position, which was summed up one, in one of his lectures when he said that he believed that capitalism was a just economic system and that a revolution to establish capitalism in the United States would be justified. It sounds like Anne Rand. Yes. I don't really remember the syllabus. It's about half a century ago. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that he assigned Hayek and that I assigned the English socialist R.H. Uh, Tawney, who was one of my favorite writers. I think he was, Bob Nozick was very, very smart and very, very quick. I think I had to work much harder in that course than, than he did. But it was 1970, so although he probably made the better arguments, I think most of the students were on my side. No, no doubt. Well, let's, let's stay anchored here for a moment because it was within a year that Harvard professor John Rawls published his already much discussed uh, A Theory of Justice uh, and by 1974, Professor Nozick, um, your co-teacher there, uh, had published Anarchy, State, and Utopia. You had already published obligations, essays on disobedience, war, and citizenship in, in 1970. So two questions for you. First, uh, what was the genesis of that collection and what was your vision for that project at the time? Uh, and secondly, uh, would it be a fair characterization to say that the subject matter differences between you and your two Harvard colleagues at the time reflected a, a clear distinction between you as partisan political activists and the professors as pursuing, say, grand theories? Or, or do you think that oversimplifies it too much? In, in a way, I guess, uh, is it fair to say that you represented more of a kind of applied political philosophy relative to their political theorizing, uh, at least in terms of Rawls. That's probably right. I mean, Rawls was, in fact, a very good social democrat, but he wasn't um, engaged politically. Bob Nozick did once attend a libertarian party 
convention, but also his he was not a political person. So yes, I was. Uh, that that was a difference between between us. Yeah. Now Rawls had some students, some um, followers, who tried to apply his his theories um, to make a politics out of uh, the, the the difference theory or the or the um, original position. But he 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 was he was reluctant to to take to make those kind of moves. Well, uh, that that's an, uh, kind of another issue, I I suppose. Let's move on from from Rawls and not not get um, kind of sidetracked with him. The the Vietnam War uh, was was front and center uh, still in, in 1970. Obviously, uh, Mai Lai massacre, uh, U.S. Army sentencing happened that year. Uh, the shootings at Kent State University and New York City's riot in Manhattan's financial district where um, construction workers attacked uh, Vietnam War protesters. Um, A new book, uh, The Hard Hat Riot, uh, Nixon, New York City, and and the Dawn of the Working Class Revolution by uh, David Paul Kuhn, focuses on that event, and, and he was just on the new book's uh, network uh, speaking with Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and he argued that hard hat riot, as he calls it, foreshadowed America's current polarization and and highlights the fracturing of the traditional FDR coalition. I may be reaching here a bit, but in your thick and thin uh, moral argument at home and abroad, you have a chapter there entitled Justice and Tribalism. Uh, minimal morality in international politics, and and I realize this is as a domestic event, uh, but the tri- the political tribalism aspect of it, and the idea that this is representative in a way uh, that still resonates today. That is blue collar workers and tradesmen pushing back hard against mostly college educated protesters that are exempt from the draft. It seems like it has its current counterparts. Do, do you interpret its significance in that way, a, a kind of historical artifact of, say, class polarization? Uh, well, it certainly it certainly was an expression of that. But I can tell you about an earlier um, expression, which I've written about often in, in dissent. In 1967, we organized in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Cambridge Neighborhood Committee on Vietnam, which was doing community organizing against the war. We sent people to knock on doors to try to find um, a family that would offer their living room so that we could have a block meeting where we could talk against the war. We organized a referendum in the city of Cambridge uh, against the war. And in that referendum, 40% of the residents voted against the war. We lost every working class district in the city of Cambridge. We carried Harvard Harvard Square and its surroundings. And it was easy to to, uh, explain what happened. First of all, we had a sociology uh, graduate student who studied the results and it turned out the higher the value of your home the higher the rent you paid, the more likely you were to vote against the war. Hmm. It was the workers of Cambridge who voted for the war. 
And it was the reason was obvious. We were sending Harvard kids exempt from the draft to knock on the doors of families whose kids were in Vietnam. Um, that's a losing uh, uh, strategy, but it but it revealed already in 67, it revealed the coming breaks between the more educated, more highly educated um, and lefter parts of the population and uh, a patriotic working class. Now, there were a lot of other reasons to the break when it, uh, when it came. And I think it's very important to try to assess the responsibility of people like us for the, the break. The neoliberal policies of, um, of Clinton and even Obama represented a kind of abandonment of the work of the American working class, uh, the people who had been the the base of, um, as you said, of the New Deal coalition. So yes, that that the politics began with the war. They were the patriots, and we were the the radical um, people who didn't love America, who carried Viet Cong flags in our demonstration. I was always against that, but it was that was so common. So it began then, but it had it has a combination of of, of political and economic uh, reasons. And the break is now very very serious. In the 2016 election, uh, the town where I grew up, which was Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a steel town, Bethlehem Steel. The steel industry was it was when when the union came in 41 and when the steel industry was flourishing, it was a Democratic Party stronghold in uh, the, the steel industry disappeared. There were no steel workers in his, in Johnstown anymore. And in 19, in 2016, Johnstown voted two to one for Trump and Princeton, New Jersey, one of the richest towns in America, voted eight to one for Hillary Clinton. And there you have uh, the story of American politics, a very important part of the story. Yeah, that's a that's a good snapshot. Well, thinking about now, say, the scope of politics and justice uh, and the need for reconciling uh, opposing political groups uh, seems a, a given. Uh, but trusting other people, especially those uh, who don't share uh, your own politics seems like risky business, even uh, when we all share a flag, a culture, uh, and a language. Fear and loathing are factors, but I, I want to ask you about resentment. Uh, in your book, Spheres of Justice, uh, you introduce the idea of complex equality and tyranny. Resentment against the prevailing ideology is, as you said, and I quote, almost as pervasive as belief, uh, unquote. Social conflict indicates there's a there's a push and pull here of, of forces. You share passages uh, from Pascal and Marx that lay out complex equality. Can, can you share uh, some of how you explain their arguments? Uh, also, can spheres of justice uh, be considered a a byproduct of, of your seminar with Nozick, and or is it a response uh, to Rawls's theory of justice more directly? No, it is definitely comes out of the um, the course with Nozick. The lectures that I wrote in that course helped me to frame, to formulate the, the book. Um, it is also a response less to Rawls than to the Rawlsians, 
because those were the ones I was most uh, in, engaged with. The, the central argument of, of, um, of complex equality, it's an argument against the radical egalitarianism of some of the 60s uh, leftists. Um, it's an argument that we can tolerate, we can tolerate inequality in, say, the market sphere, so long as money buys only a fancier vacation for you than for me. It makes it possible for you to be a, a collector of old books or uh, paintings. That kind of inequality we shouldn't worry about. If money buys political power, if money buys better health care than is available to your fellow citizens, if money gets your kids into colleges that other Americans can't get into, that's when we should worry. We should worry about when the possession of, of one good distorts the possession of other goods. You could say that in the United States, it's the power of, of wealth that distorts other, distrib other distributions. In the Soviet Union, in the old Soviet Union, it was state power that distorted all uh, uh, distributions. If you remember the Communist Party and an official of the Soviet state, you got a beautiful summer home, you got vacations in the Crimea, you got health care that no one else got, and so on. And so the, the idea of co is that if every, if the spheres are autonomous, if, if you, you, you get a professional appointment because of your competence and not because of your family connections, you, you get a political office because you are persuasive to voters and not because of the, the money you spend on advertising and so on. If all the social goods are distributed for the right reasons, then we will have a much more, we won't have a society where everyone is the same or everyone is equal. We won't have uniform outcomes in any of the spheres, but we will have a much more egalitarian society across all the spheres because some people will prosper in one and other people in, a, in another. I was never sympathetic to, or it's a Rawlsian idea actually, it may be the biggest difference between us that the, um, the talents we have are a matter of, of luck and they should not affect distributive justice. And I believe that we have to deal with, it's the people with their talents who are the agents um, and the subjects of, uh, of justice. And they are the ones we have to deal with. And um, I don't want, I want to say that John Rawls deserves the fame he won, uh, even if his intelligence or his wisdom was a, a luck of the genetic draw. Even if that's true, it doesn't matter. He deserves the fame he got. And um, if someone has a green thumb and can make money in the economy, and can, if he's a successful entrepreneur, I'm quite willing to have him earn more money than I do, so long as he can't use it to buy political power or things that don't belong to the realm of money. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, so that's a key thing that you you don't 
those things aren't convertible to something else from one sphere to the other. The central argument of the book. Nice. Well, kind of moving on from spheres of justice, I I guess kind of in the background here, uh, there's another election upon us, as you know, and and due to the pandemic, voting's already uh, begun in earnest. If people who actually vote are are taking advantage of of online and mail-in voting, you would think this could make for a record turnout given these options. Uh, and yet, with the freedom to vote comes, of course, the freedom not to vote. This right to vote resonates especially for those who live in countries lacking that democratic duty. One refrain you hear from American people sometimes uh, who don't vote is the notion that their vote does not matter. This is concerning, of course, and especially when that kind of thinking uh, comes from younger generations. I bring this up because in your in 1970, uh, you, your book, Obligations, uh, Essays on Disobedience, War and Citizenship, was published. What was your message about citizenship back then? And has it changed at all since? Um, I, it probably hasn't changed. It had it had some qualities of the um, divided mind that you talked about before. I did. I do believe I did and do believe in um, an active citizenship. I want um, something like a participatory democracy. I want citizens to be engaged. At the same time, I once wrote an essay for dissent. Well, it's in that book called Two Cheers for Participatory Democracy. I think it is important that citizens have a right, as you said, to um, withdraw from political life, to um, to spend time, more time um, with their kids or um, to go off somewhere and write poetry and ignore uh, the political realm. I worry that if you focus, if, if you focus too much on, if you insist too much upon activism and participation, which are very good things, then you may get the rule of the activists, the people who will have the most time Uh, the deepest commitments, who are willing to sit longer at a meeting than anyone else. It it happened in in all the the left organizations that I know about. We believed in participatory democracy, but it was uh, a handful of people who were so committed and, and, and who didn't have families or work with fixed hours who ruled. Mm. And so you, 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 you want a political system that rewards participation, but that guarantees to non-participants a say in the government, which means you want representative democracy rather than direct democracy. You want room for, um, I say this in the article, you want room for people who participate and also for people who kibitz. You, you have to beware of the, the, the tyranny of the militants. That's a, that's a good way to put it. The tyranny of uh, the militants. One of your Harvard colleagues, uh, maybe not now, but same same school of government, Alexander Kesar, uh, 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 just wrote a book called "Hey, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College?" and and he spoke with Lily Gorin here on on New Books Network, and he mentioned that you know there's many reasons it still exists. Uh, but we almost changed the Electoral College most recently in 1970 
uh, when the House of Representatives uh, approved a constitutional amendment for a national popular vote that was uh, later uh, defeated in the Senate. I, I wanted to ask you, I realized you may not have looked at this all that much, but do you think the, the popular vote uh, would help end this type of fatalism uh, with regard to personal voting? Well, it would help given the, the what seems to be the, the fact that um, the, the votes of, of people in uh, states with, with small populations counts much, much more heavily than the vote of people in New York or California or, or Texas. Yes, in, in a democracy, we want one person, one vote, and we want the votes to be, to have the same weight. And the Electoral College obviously is designed to make that impossible. Um, I don't see how a constitutional um, amendment could ever be passed. It could get through the House. Um, but it, it will be opposed in the states that have such a, a greater weight because mm. of their small populations, and they are not going to ratify an amendment of that sort. So I'm afraid we're stuck with the Electoral College for a long time to come. Yeah, that may, that may be the case. Uh, and speaking of um, voting duties, President Trump, and uh, talking about this election just, just months away, uh, the anthropologist uh, Wade Davis uh, at the University of British Columbia just r wrote an article in August uh, for Rolling Stone uh, entitled uh, The Unraveling of America, among, among other things, especially regarding uh, the country's COVID-19 response. He, he wrote this, and I, I just wanted to get your reaction to it. He, he says, and I quote, Evidence of such terminal decadence is the choice that so many Americans made in 2016 to prioritize their personal indignations, placing their own resentments above any concerns for the fate of the country and the world as they rushed to elect a man whose only credential for the job was his willingness to give voice to their hatreds, validate their anger, and target their enemies real or imagined. One shudders to think of what it will mean to the world of Americans in November, knowing all that they do, elect to keep such a man in political power. But, but even should Trump be resoundingly defeated, it's not at all clear that such a profoundly polarized nation will be able to find a way forward. For better or for worse, America has had its time. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, reading uh, the, the Rolling Stone article, I realize this is as much, if you read the whole thing, I, it's as much lament as critical observation. And his point, it goes on, hey, that we've lost the very idea of society, in quotes, and with our cult of the individual. Um, from, from your vantage point, Michael, to, to what extent do you agree with Davis's stark thesis? Well, it is um, it is uh, rhetorically um, a success. Uh, it's a very powerful piece. I think it is um, greatly. I hope it is, but I also think it is greatly e exaggerated. And I also think it is um, the the contempt that he expresses for the people, the men and women, his fellow citizens who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 is a very dangerous politics. 
people voted for Trump for many reasons, some of them for the reasons he gave, uh, some of them because they believed in um, a Supreme Court that would overthrow Roe v. Wade, some of them because they were politically and economically vulnerable in new ways, and they, they were trying and they found that vulnerability not being expressed and talked about by the Democrats, as it should have been. There are many people who voted for Trump who voted for Obama four years earlier. So I would not be quick to give up on, 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 those, on those people. Um, I also think his, his view of American decadence is, is in part expressed vis-a-vis -vis China. And I, a lot of people are thinking that way. The fall of America means the rise of China. Um, and in fact, that is a possible, um, the, the world may turn that way over the next 50, 75 years. But it doesn't have to. America has resilience, I think. And America together with the European Union makes up, uh, is, is, is still capable of hegemonic rule. And yeah. more, we don't have to think about hegemonic rule if we, if we are able to imagine a, um, a world of, um, in which there is a division of labor among the most powerful states, among the US, the EU, China, Russia, India, Brazil. Not quite a concert of nations because in fact, there isn't equality among the nations, but a concert of powers. There are different ways with imagination we can think about and work toward a world order that isn't simply American hegemony versus Chinese. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you make a good point about the, the peace uh, fomenting that same polarization that we're just talking about with the hard hat riots. It's almost contempt in, in, in a way, and certainly an oversimplification of uh, people's motives, uh, which, which again, kind of gives, comes back to thinking about your divided self. Uh, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot more to, um, to people and how they think and their motivations than so, sometimes these pieces. And, like, and as you said, it's, it's rhetorically uh, quite powerful. Uh, Davis is actually quite the writer, uh, cultural anthropologist. He started as an ethnobotanist. What I wanted to kind of move on to, though, was I wanted to use, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this idea about anthropology. He's a cultural anthropologist, and anthropology, this um, study of human societies and cultures, although you're formally a political theorist, uh, you knew a seminal figure in that field, uh, Clifford Gertz. Uh, you were both at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And listeners may be familiar with his uh, influential, The Interpretation of, of Cultures. Can you share a bit about Clifford Gertz and how your relationship with him influenced your own thinking and scholarship? He was a good a good friend and a, a, a teacher in many ways. And I think that I am, we, we talked about my, my commitment to um, the use of historical examples. I also use anthropological examples and that's largely because of Cliff. I think that the, the philosophers like Rawls 
when they weren't reading philosophy, they read um, economics and psychology. And when I'm not reading political theory, I read anthropology and history. And it was Cliff directed my reading. Um, He was a very committed very committed to the to the study of culture and to the diversity of 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 cultures. He he didn't like the the next generation. Of, this is very interesting. The next generation of anthropologists, pr- produced in part by people who'd grown up in the 60s and then went into the field in the 70s or 80s, and who went into the field and wrote about themselves. And Cliff thought it was very important to go into the field and write about the natives. <laughs> and and he was important. He wasn't a um, he was a he was a, a cultural anthropologist who wasn't a relativist. He really believed that it was possible to get things right. That the 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 goal of the of the anthropologist in the field was to get the culture right. So I I. Um, I do think of uh, of Sears of Justice as um, the closest any of the writers about justice have come to um, to anthropology. Interesting, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, and and maybe we'll we'll leave aside uh, the anthropologists and maybe dispense with the the Rolling Stone article. That that was actually a piece I'm sure that was written for his latest book. Uh, so there, so there really was a polemical, rhetorical flourish to that, I suppose. But hey, we've talked about it a bit already. But but let's try to give listeners a better sense of your latest book, a, a Foreign Policy for the Left. I'm thinking it originated as a dissent article uh, of the same title in August of 2014. Uh, but but I'm not sure. Uh, you correct me on on that. In your dissent article, uh, you write about the de- default position, uh, which becomes the title of the introduction uh, of the book. And and I quote, uh, this is what I will call the default position of the left. Uh, the best foreign policy is a good domestic policy. How many times have we argued against foreign adventures and unnecessary wars by insisting that our fellow citizens would do better to focus energy and resources on injustice at home, uh, end of quote. In your introduction, the default position, you write, I quote, political wisdom isn't necessarily militarist or pacifist or anything in between. It requires a steady commitment to conciliation and compromise so long as these are possible and a readiness to fight when necessary. The two are equally required. That combination has always been a problem for the left. Can you put these together for listeners? Can you add anything more to the default position as as you've articulated it? And and I'm thinking here in the background about your mention of Charles Beard, the economic historian, and this thing he called continental Americanism, and and the the New Republic. Uh, the Charles Lindbergh and the American First Movement. Is there a link there with that stuff? Well, um, let, let me first respond to the to the idea that a, a left politics requires conciliation and compromise when that's possible, a readiness to fight when that's necessary, and that that combination has been very hard for the left. The use of force is very hard 
for um, for the left. And the, the, the classic example is the policy of the British Labour Party and the French Socialists in the 1930s when they watched Hitler and watched the the rearmament of um, and, and under a Nazi ideology and voted consistently against rearming themselves. And why? Because they 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 thought that the the basic left position was anti-militarist. And that's um, that is a left position. But like every other politic political position, it's 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 right most of the time, but not all the time. <laughs> um, okay, so the the default position is is a, is very very old, and I identified it first uh, in the Bible. The message of the biblical prophets, the message of prophets like Isaiah, was to the Israelite people. The message was, if you do justice, if you don't grind the faces of the poor, if you protect the widow and the orphan, then you will endure forever in the land that God has given you, whatever. So that's the argument. You, if, you, if you want to be a light unto the nations, as Isaiah said the Israelites should be, all you have to do is sit still and shine. And that is, that's been left politics for a very, very long time. We're very good. I think in the history of the left, you have to say, we've been right most of the time on domestic, on social and economic issues. And we've very, very often been wrong on how to deal with tyrants or conquerors uh, abroad. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the essays in the um, uh, Foreign Policy for the Left is about humanitarian intervention, which I, I think if, you can, if a massacre is going on in Rwanda or Cambodia, somebody should stop it. And the use of force to stop it is justified. In fact, may be morally obligatory. And that is a position that many, many leftists have simply de- denied, refused. So I am a, um, it, it comes out of just and unjust wars. I, I, and it may come out simply of growing up in New York during World War II. That may be the key to everything. If you grow up during World War II, you know that some wars have to be fought. Thanks for shining a light on that. Can you explain a bit about leftism abroad? That is uh, the view that everything that's wrong with the world is America's fault. What's the primary source of this? Uh, Kind of along the lines we're just talking about. I, I realize it's not just one thing. I have to ask, does the 1958 book, The Ugly American, play into this at all? Well, it may be an expression of it. Yes, I think the left has um, many leftists, not all of us, have, have adopted a position that starts as anti-imperialist and then turns into anti-American um, because of America's hegemonic role around the world. And I, I, th- I have always thought that a, um, a left foreign policy has to work case by case. You, you can't say that, um, you can't assume as a, as a starting point of, of arguments 
that whatever the United States does in the world is done for imperialist reasons. The United States is, along with um, the Soviet Union, primarily responsible for the defeat of Nazism. And we are also primarily responsible for the defeat of communist tyranny. So that's, you have to recognize that. The world would, would, would be much, very much worse off mm. without American power in the 1940s and again in the 50s and 60s. On the other hand, I think the war in, um, in Vietnam was an unjust war. I think that many of our interventions in Central America have been, in fact, imperialist interventions. I, I thought that the um, the first war uh, in the Gulf, the first anti-Iraq war, was um, justified after the invasion of, of Kuwait. The invasion of Kuwait was an act of aggression which the world had to respond to and which we led a response to that was just. I thought the second Iraq war was immoral, unjust, um, also uh, crazy. So you, you, judgment, political judgments have to be case by case. You have to look at what is actually happening in the world. There are many parts of the world where America is, um, is helpful to the people on the ground. And there are other parts of the world where what we're doing is helpful only to the oligarchs or the tyrants. Sure. And we have distinguish and we have to say yes sometimes and we have to say no sometimes. That's what you're referring to, um, I take it, in, in global and domestic justice, the the chapter, uh, I think it's like chapter five, where you, you make the point uh, that ideas uh, regarding justice, hey, justice is contextual or, or needs to be. Uh, yes. And in your postscript, the title is can there be a decent left? We really come back to the notion of resentment from a left angle uh, when you ask uh, this question, is there any way of escaping the politics of guilt and resentment on the home ground of a superpower? Can, can you share your reasons why uh, moving beyond, uh, you mentioned Philip Roth's articulation of it as embitterment and not thinking, uh, as a way, you give some reasons why, uh, as an attempt to begin a debate. Yeah, I wrote that piece right after 9-11, um, right after the attack on um, Manhattan and, um, and the Pentagon. And I was furious at the response of many, many uh, leftists who said we had it coming. That was their essential response to an attack uh, that killed 3,000 innocent people who are not uh, armed and were not fighters in a battle. And, and that, the piece comes out of that response. And, I was, and, and one of the explanations that I gave for that response was the, the sense of people living in um, a hegemonic power, which America clearly is, um, may feel guilt and resentment um, about the role of their own country. What you, it was easy in America in the, during the Vietnam War to feel things were being done in our name, which we felt uh, guilty about. We felt 
we should be doing something to stop the war and we weren't doing enough and so on. So that produces feelings of, of, of guilt. But that's not the right way to respond to an attack on your fellow citizens. It, it, the, the, the response of so many leftists reflected a, a lack of, of sympathy with, of loyalty to fellow Americans who were, um, who were attacked, uh, killed, in an act which was a, a terrorist act. Um, it wasn't an attack on a, on a military base. It wasn't a, a response to uh, a military engagement. It was simply a terrorist act. And I, I, I do not believe that people on the left should ever accept uh, the killing of innocent people as a political, um, as a, as a political tactic. Well, and even uh, I think the position uh, Saddam Hussein himself was gloating. Uh, so that that was you weren't on the right side if you were gloating with Saddam on that one. As you sympathized with the victims of 9/11, and and that whole it was like it was one of those moments like knowing where you were when John F. Kennedy or Robert F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King were shot. One of those moments, it was like the 9-11 moment. Did, did that then later make going to war in Iraq, it made it so much easier. We, we wanted to believe something that may or may not have actually had, the, had all the, the facts behind it. Right. Well, the first response was in Afghanistan. And I thought since al-Qaeda was um, not merely being uh, given a haven, by the Taliban government in Afghanistan, but was actually being supported and, and helped uh, an effort to, um, to defeat the Taliban and expel al-Qaeda was uh, justified. I thought that the way we went about doing it, trying to do it first on the cheap through alliances with warlords in Afghanistan, and then never investing enough money in the re- rebuilding of the country afterwards because we were going to go on to Iraq and and we needed uh, resources for that campaign. That was wrong. We, we, we were right to go in, I thought, and wrong in the way we uh, in the way we went in and in the way we stayed in without investing the necessary resources. And then the going to Iraq had nothing to do with uh, 9-11. There was no. Uh, yeah. There was no reason for that for that war. Uh, and, and that's uh, probably well-trodden territory. Uh, yeah. uh, a kind of a side question then, as far as bin Laden goes, and do, do you feel that he should have gone to trial, that, that argument that, hey, we've got an international court of justice, it would have been, in, in order to make a point about the rule of law, the international rule of law that we, we needed to do that and and not just yeah i'm not sure i don't know um we don't really have a um fully stable world government with a with a judicial wing mm. that also has um executive power i i think there 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 were reasons to think that bringing bin laden to trial would have also provided an occasion for widespread terrorist attacks. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. I. I am. If you think about, suppose we had done it with a drone, 
without putting our soldiers at, 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 at risk. We've killed a lot of people with drones. And a lot of them have been the wrong people, but sometimes they are the right people. If you think about targeted assassination, the real question is, what is the target? And can we hit the target without killing many, many people around the target, as we have so often done? Yeah, and I, and I, and I don't mean to try to pin you down on that point. I, I, I just, as you were talking about how we mishandled how we treat people, you know, we go in and we do something, but then we leave people behind. And I think you were, I think it was maybe in this piece where you had talked about how well the the, the British had given us a lesson about that. Yes, yes. Um, we, we did a book, the Descent did a book called Getting Out, about how to get out of Iraq. Um, and we, we asked scholars to write chapters on getting out, how the British got out of the American colonies, how the French got out of Algeria, how the British got out of India. We had a, a whole series of articles. And actually, the, the, the most honorable exit was the Brits from the American colonies because they recognized a commitment to the people who were going to be vulnerable in the republic, in the independent American republic, they rep uh, 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 to the to the Tories, as they were called, the American Tories, yeah. um, and they gathered them in New York, fifty or sixty thousand of them, and they took them, some of them to Canada and some to Britain, the richer ones to Britain, but okay in these boats that a couple of hundred people at a time. So it was a big project to take out 50,000 sure. and they did it. And then you think about the French in Algeria who left behind so many people who were just gonna be murdered by um, the FLN um, and the Americans uh, in Vietnam, um, that hasty exit from uh, Saigon with people left behind who were who were simply killed or sent to re-education camps. Yeah. So yes, yeah. It, even you have even after you uh, an imperial conquest or a colonial a period of colonial rule like the French in Algeria, getting out still entails responsibilities. You have to do it in a certain way. That, that rescues, that that saves the people that you have compromised. Yeah, no, that was uh, it, that was an interesting piece. Uh, well, hey, we haven't even come close, of course, to scratching the surface of, of your latest book, uh, Foreign Policy for the Left, and again, uh, Yale University Press, 2018. But uh, you, you've got many books. Uh, this is just one of them. I did notice uh, in Thick and Thin, uh, Moral Argument at Home and Abroad, uh, you've got a new preface for that, and that's uh, dated uh, 2019, I think. Yes. Um, yes. I guess what I, I, I want to, I hope what we've done is at least highlight your, your larger project for those listeners uh, interested in politics and, and political theorizing from whatever perspective they're, they're at, hard hat or or, or hippie side, whatever that, that may be, left side, I should say. Hey, you recently uh, wrote an article uh, for Dissent Magazine 
uh, and you so you've been writing uh, for many years. H- how long have you been writing uh, and editing for Descent magazine? I, I wrote my first article for Descent in 56, 1956. Uh, hey, well, what what are you contemplating these days uh, in terms of ideas? Uh, do you have any current projects you're working on? Uh, yes, yes. First of all, I have another uh, a book coming out next month, I think, um, which is a, a a conversation with a French a book length conversation with a French political theorist, uh, which wow. has already been published in, in France and will be published here in the next month or two, uh, called Justice is Steady Work. Back to that phrase. Back to the Irving Howe, yeah. And I'm, I'm working on a book, or I may be working on a book, sometimes I think I'm working on a book, about uh, the adjective liberal. And it, it derives from two, uh, I, I'm inspired by two books. There is a book by the Italian anti-communist intellectual, anti-fascist intellectual who was murdered by Mussolini's thugs in, in exile in Paris, who wrote a book called Liberal Socialism. And then I have an Israeli friend, Yael, Yael Tamir, who did her doctoral dissertation at Oxford with Isaiah Berlin, and and that produced a book called Liberal Nationalism. So I was thinking about liberal socialism, liberal nationalism, what is the adjective doing in those cases? And so this is a book about how I think of myself as a liberal Democrat, a liberal socialist, a liberal nationalist, a liberal Jew, uh, and what what is the adjective doing? What does it mean? It'll be a little book and it will include anecdotes and stories from my own experience as well as um, political theory. So that's uh, that's what I'm working on. I don't know if it'll work out, if it'll if it'll come out, but uh, that's what I'm doing right now. Sure. That sounds that sounds good. As a final question for you. Hey, do you have any reading recommendations you would make to listeners as students of uh, political theory in terms of the people who influenced your thought uh, and and any recommendations of contemporary or, or actually complementary reads of of a more contemporary nature that that you would recommend? The books that 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 were most influential on my political development were three. Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, uh, Camus' The Rebel, and a novel by the Italian Ignazio Saloni called Bread and Wine. And those are, I think, three wonderful books um, and uh, very formative in my own, uh, my own existence. I've been reading lately a lot of poetry and I would just I want to just recommend one book um, from one of my favorite American poets, uh, uh, a man named Philip Levine, who died some maybe five, seven years ago. And the book is called What Work Is. What Work Is. And it's a series of he, this is a, a guy who grew up in Detroit and worked in the auto factories. And these are poems about work. Um, 
and I, 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 they're quite wonderful poems, and they are, uh, you know, they're not political poems. They're just poems about what it means to work, what work is like. And they are a wonderful, um, not a foundation, but just a, 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 a good base to start to think about what left politics is really about. Well, nice. Thanks for mentioning some poetry. That, that I think, shows your breadth of your thinking and thought. And just as a, one kind of aside I, I had wanted to ask you about, uh, did, did you know Albert uh, A.O. Hirschman? Yes, of course. He had the office across the hall from me oh. at the Institute in Princeton. I knew him very, very well. Um, and I've read quite a lot of his uh his work and talked with him about it. I hope that development economists are still reading his uh, his his work because uh, he had a, a, a view of how to overcome um, poverty in uh, countries, especially in Latin America, that they can still learn from. Yeah. And, well, and you were fortunate to have guys like Hirschman and, and Gertz. They weren't just uh, they weren't specialists just in their own field. Uh, a little bit like even Rorty, they, they kind of branch out and, and not just be, I don't know, locked into their to, to a narrow specialization. Right, right. And, and I think that speaks to your situation as well, eh? the way you write and express ideas. So thanks so much for uh, spending so much time talking. And uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. And uh, look forward to, to seeing that new book when it comes out. And good luck with, with the projects and keep up the descent work. As long as I can. Yes. Thank you.